Welcome to Season 2 of Cannon Blast History Podcast. and welcome to the second season and the first episode of the second season of Cannon Blast History Podcast. And I'm your host, Ben, and I've got some good news. I am pretty much done with my doctorate. In just a few weeks, I'll officially, thank God, have my PhD in history. Now, I guess the hard part is finding uh, a position, but you know, I'm I'm on the market like every history grad student, so we'll see. But in the meantime, I've got lots of free time and I want to use some of that to Uh, promote scholarship, and how better to do that than to revamp my podcast. You'll notice there is a new uh, theme song, which uh, I think sounds kind of piratey, and uh, I believe that points to the fact that this season is going to be very naval history-centric, but of course we'll talk about some other things as well. Really, wherever uh, the spirit of history takes us, we will go. But on today's episode, I want to talk about something that I came across in my research, For those that don't know, my dissertation research largely focused on the ways in which colonies from Canada down to the Barbados created their own provincial navies. So each colonial government, for the most part, created a naval militia to defend their shores from pirates, the Spanish, the French, Native American naval enemies, you name it. And... While in my dissertation, my main focus was on the government side of things, I definitely kept note for future work on the plight of sailors. And in South Carolina, many of those sailors, certainly not a majority, but an important minority of the sailors and the provincial Navy were of African descent, both slave and free. And their story does not get talked about too much. Not only do provincial navies not get talked about much in general, but especially the uh, plight of African sailors defending a colony who has them, many of them as slaves. So today we're going to talk about that contradiction, what it was like for these men to serve a colony that did not have their best interests at heart by any means, but also the ways in which they used the service in the provincial navy as a way to resist the authority of the slaveocracy of South Carolina. Today's sources, as I always like to give credit where I get my research from, are mainly two books, one of which is Blackjacks, African-American Seamen in the Age of Sail by Dr. Jeff Bolster, and Patroons and Periaguas, Enslaved Watermen and Watercraft of the Low Country by Lynn B. Harris. I should probably also throw a third book in there, which has been very instrumental in my own dissertation research, and that is This Torrent of Indians, Warfare on the Southern Frontier, 1715 through 1728 by Larry Ivers. You should definitely check out all of these works. They're by great scholars who tell us so much about our nation's naval history, particularly through the guise of people who were enslaved or who were marginalized in colonial society. The story of African mariners must necessarily go back to Africa. Back to the 16th century when slavery connects, and in slavery really and exploration connects European empires with African kingdoms on the western coast of Africa. On the western coast of Africa, for thousands of years, there had been a vibrant boat building tradition that largely relied on the construction of canoes. What we would call canoes, or as the Spanish called them, canoas, that's where we get our word from, 
were very common uh, coastal trading craft and riverine craft, both among Native American peoples and among West African peoples. So that was something that was very common to the indigenous peoples in both Africa and the Americas and the West Indies. So the experience of operating canoes or what will later be known as periaguas, which are big canoes with sails on them, comes from a place of expertise, both in the African and Native American backgrounds. So when they operate in the provincial Navy as sailors on canoes, they bring that long tradition from Africa of canoe operation with them. Truly, Europeans got the idea of canoes and small craft from Native Americans and West Africans. African mariners built large canoes, and sometimes they would actually go up to 80 feet in length, 8 feet at the beam. So they were ship size uh, comparatively when you look at how uh, big they were compared to the European ships of the time. But African mariners on the west coast of the continent very rarely ventured far out to sea. They would go above the waves to go fishing. They would um, use trading those small trading craft for um, trading among different tribes and kingdoms on the West African coast, uh, both for the trade of commodities and the slave trade. There was slavery in West Africa, of course, much different than what will emerge as the Atlantic slave trade. So aquatic travel was very fundamental to West African peoples thousands of years before Europeans got there. The typical belief among West African peoples is that the craft that they built, the canoes that they built, the watercraft that they built were not only important for trade, but they had spiritual significance. For instance, in Upper Guinea, uh, where mariners or boatwrights made boats out of silk cotton trees, they believed that they had special spirits living in them. So when you went to, well, when you went down the coast or you went into a river, you were not only sailing a piece of wood, you were sailing an animated living creature, essentially. And this is sort of a parallel to how the Europeans viewed their ships as uh, personifications of motherly figures. That's where the origins of calling a ship she come from. So there is a very spiritually intrinsic part of boat building in West African cultures. Now, in Africa, mariners, as European exploration and slavery really commences, these, these canoe men would serve as middlemen between European merchants and African officials um, on the west coast of the continent. They would act as translators, pilots, and it would occasionally uh, help transport enslaved people to European ships. So they were a fundamental part of Europe's involvement in West Africa for much of the 16th, 17th, 18th, and even 19th centuries. From the very beginning of South Carolina's establishment in the 17th century, this maritime experience of West Africans was used by colonizers who brought over African slaves to the New World. Now, people who were mariners of African descent in South Carolina were primarily enslaved, but occasionally involved freemen. And early on in the colony's history, the main use for African mariners was to row canoes and periaguas. Periaguas, once again, being those bigger canoes with sails on them. These African mariners were the primary labor force for plantation owners and for traders who were exporting their goods from their plantations or from their trade with Native American tribes. They would take these goods on these canoes on inland waterways in South Carolina and bring them down the rivers to Charlestown, where they would then be exported on ships. African sailors and boatmen were a vital part of the colony's early economy. 
In a time period when there were no major highways or roads, the main people operating the colony's uh, transportation service, essentially 18th, 17th and 18th century truck drivers, were people of African descent. Now, clearly, if, if it is a plantation owner or an Indian trader sending African mariners to transport goods, many of these men are going to be enslaved and not have any say in the matter. Traveling on inland rivers in South Carolina or coastal rivers can be a pretty dangerous prospect. To be honest, I have flipped more than a few times on a canoe going down the Ashley River. But of course, I don't pretend to have had any close resemblance to the experiences these men had. They fought alligators, currents, hurricanes, probably uh, pirates on occasion as well, and attacks by hostile native tribes. So this could be a very dangerous enterprise. But nonetheless, African mariners served as a very major important, uh, served a very important role rather in the colony's early transport service. Just as much as they served in the colony's transport service, early on, South Carolina's white officials who ran the government, um, the elite of the colony, used African and Native American mariners to man the colony's early coastal defense forces. Like many other colonies, South Carolina built its own naval forces to defend its shores from enemy attacks during times of war. But unlike many of those colonies, South Carolina actually had a permanent naval establishment. South Carolina and Massachusetts essentially were the only two colonies that kept warships in constant pay for much of the 18th century. But for South Carolina, its navy that remained on the books for almost an entire century was largely built out of canoes. Large canoes, periaguas, or even what are known as whale boats, which are all large boats that might have one or two masts and have a couple of small cannon called swivel guns. This is not a navy in the modern sense of the word, but it is a state-funded force of small craft that would patrol the inland waterways in South Carolina, sometimes sailing as far south as Spanish Florida on spy missions. These are not craft built for large battles, but they certainly are craft that are useful for scouting, and that is why they are known as the Scout Boat Navy when historians discuss this topic. Early on, many of the men in the Scout Boat Navies, at least a strong minority, were of both Native American and African descent. Most sailors were white, but it, you know a good, good-sized minority of these uh, scout crews were people of color. And one of the biggest Indian nations that provided mariners early on was South Carolina's ally, the Yamasee Nation, who spanned much of the area south of Charleston all the way down to modern-day Savannah. The Yamasee Nation uh, was also, just like the West Africans, a nation with thousands of years of maritime experience trading on inland waterways. So, their experience combined with the naval experience of black sailors and Europeans who were quickly uh, learning how to operate these boats were all vital in making the Scout Boat Navy work. Now, the Scout Boat Navy starts off as a group of small boats in the early 1700s that were used to spy out enemy attacks or scout out enemy attacks. But by the end of what is known as Queen Anne's War, the Scout Boat Navy is a flotilla of well-armed vessels containing what could be called Marines. Militiamen are on these boats with muskets ready to do battle. So by the end of Queen Anne's War, a very major war that pitted South Carolina and much of the English world against the Spanish and French, by the end of that conflict, the South Carolina Scout Boat Navy was a pretty formidable force, 
and had successfully created a safe zone for the English around the frontiers of the colony, at least the maritime frontiers of the colony. This scout boat navy gets downsized after Queen Anne's War ends. When Queen Anne's War ends in 1713, there's a lot of hard feelings between South Carolina and their former allies in the Native American Yamasee Nation. Really, the hard feelings were on the part of the Yamasee people who were upset over South Carolina's abuse of the Yamasee people through bad trading practices and through the enslavement of the Yamasee people. Even though they had been allies to the English, they were clearly being abused by the authorities in Charlestown. So they rose up. They declared war. They led a massive incursion into the colony that killed up to 10% of South Carolina's population. It took a lot of hard fighting, assistance from other friendly native tribes, and assistance from other colonies to push the Yamasee invasion back by 1717. But it took over two years for South Carolina to withstand this invasion. Much of that victory over the Yamasee, if it can even be called a victory, was thanks to the sacrifices of the Scout Boat Navy. What was left of the Scout Boat Navy engaged in many naval skirmishes with Yamasee war canoes, and they were able to land militiamen at strategic points near Pocatalago and Beaufort, South Carolina. The Scout Boat Navy was one of many important components of South Carolina's ultimate victory over the Yamasee, over that close call that nearly led to the destruction of the colony of South Carolina. The Scout Boat Navy, just like the militia on land, did have black mariners. On land, the South Carolina government allowed for, quote, trusty slaves, unquote, to be enlisted in the militia, although typically they were given spears instead of guns and were ordered to fight alongside the white militiamen. On land, they were offered their freedom, in some cases, if they were judged to be brave in battle. Of course, that was up to the discretion of white officers. So in some ways, at least... For a few enslaved people, serving in the militia may have been a road to freedom in the fight against the embassy. But truly, these militia forces were simply depending on the labor and sacrifice of enslaved Africans and, and some free people of color without treating them as equal soldiers. Not much is known about black sailors in the scout boat Navy during the Yemisee War, but we do know that there were multiracial crews, just as there had been before. A few, a, a smattering here and there, rather, of both enslaved and free Africans and native mariners from other tribes that were not at war with South Carolina, like the Musty or the Kusabo Indians. The MSC War ends in 1717, and South Carolina technically won the war, but only with the help of other native nations like the Cherokee and other colonies like Massachusetts. North Carolina and Virginia, who sent men and weapons to help the colony. South Carolina was very nearly destroyed. About 10% of the white population were killed by the embassy. Uh, we don't know um, what percentage of the African population or the colony's allied native populations were killed. But we do know that in the years following the embassy war, South Carolina's government continued to consider the participation of black and native soldiers and sailors in the colony's military as necessary. In 1720, the South Carolina legislature passed the, quote, act for the enlisting such trusty slaves as shall be thought serviceable to this settlement in times of alarms, unquote. Militia leaders were enabled to draft African, Indian, or mixed-race slaves from various white plantation owners and to arm them for militia service. 
It is likely this law was extended to the South Carolina Scout Boat Navy as well. The colony promised for those African or Native slaves that were wounded or killed in battle that their white owners would receive compensation to help care for them or replace them. It is noteworthy that that same protection and compensation was not extended to those um, non-white soldiers and sailors themselves. So once again, the service and the sacrifice of African and Native soldiers and sailors in South Carolina's military was considered important, but they are not considered the uh, equals of white soldiers who were typically given some kind of compensation for wounds. A lot of this changes, at least South Carolina government's opinion towards the arming of black residents changes in 1739. In 1739, with the encouragement of the Spanish government in Florida, many South Carolina slaves started fleeing to Spanish Florida, and um, one such group instituted a violent rebellion to this day known as the Stono Slave Revolt. That was the bloodiest slave rebellion in American history and actually happened not far from where my family lives uh, in West Ashley, South Carolina. And the group of fleeing rebels does put up a harsh fight, but they are subdued by the colony's militia after killing several white plantation owners. In response to this rebellion in 1740, the colony issues one of the most stringent slave laws in the entire continent called the Negro Act of 1740. And this act was pretty strict. Uh, no congregation of enslaved or free blacks could be had um, without white supervision. Black residents of South Carolina, slave or free, could not carry weapons without permission. But all of these laws passed were to enable the white government to prevent future rebellions. And, and honestly, these were some of the harshest slave laws that the country will see, and they stayed in effect essentially until 1865. One of the big fears of the South Carolina government was that the Spanish were going to continue to incite slave rebellions, and honestly, this was a valid fear because the Spanish government in Florida had offered freedom to any black residents of South Carolina or Georgia who would flee and join uh, Spain's colony at St. Augustine. So white patrols of slave hunters really amp up the white community deputizes pretty much any white male to investigate African-American meetings. It gets to be a pretty bad police state for the black residents of South Carolina. But nevertheless, the colony still continued to rely on the services of black mariners and their naval forces. War breaks out between Britain and Spain in 1739, called the War of Jenkins' Ear. It may be the only war in human history named after a missing body part. The war was named for a man named Robert Jenkins, who was killed, excuse me, he was maimed, rather, by Spanish Guardacostas. Spanish Guardacostas were the Spanish Coast Guard in the West Indies. And he takes, allegedly, takes his ear to Parliament and says, look what the Spanish Coast Guard has done to me. Well, apocryphal or not, there was quite a lot of anger in the British Empire at alleged Spanish Uh, Guardacosta misbehavior. So, war breaks out in 1739, and South Carolina and Georgia, as the southern frontier colonies, are immediately put into the front line with Spanish Florida. As war breaks out, the Spanish actually invade Georgia, and General Oglethorpe, who leads, essentially acts as the governor of Georgia, sends 
word to Charlestown in South Carolina that he needs military assistance immediately. Almost immediately, Governor William Bull of South Carolina and the Royal Navy meet together. By the way, this is happening in the summer of 1742. They agree to send two South Carolina warships that were in the area called the Charlestown Galley and the Beaufort Galley, as well as several merchant ships that had been taken up for the occasion and a few Royal Navy ships altogether, all under the command of the Royal Navy, to go and rescue Oglethorpe's forces in, in Georgia. We know that in this fleet of South Carolina vessels, including the South Carolina government-owned galleys and the merchant ships that had been impressed for the occasion, there were something like 1,000 sailors. Out of these 1,000 sailors, there were approximately 73 black sailors. It's hard to say how many were slave, enslaved or free, but we do know that the, uh, that the number counted for about 7% of the colony's naval force. So that's a significant number uh, of black sailors for the colony, even if uh, they didn't form a majority of the men on the ships. But what happens next is extraordinary and is truly noteworthy as an early form of um, legal resistance, I would say, against the slaveocracy by black uh, servicemen in South Carolina. Now, this emergency fleet that was sent to rescue Oglethorpe never really sees action. They got there too late. Oglethorpe had already defeated the Spanish. So the South Carolina Navy and the Royal Navy go back to Charlestown. Now, I want to read the following report from the governor, William Bull, who reported to the colony's legislature on a group of free and enslaved Africans who demanded payment for taking part in the expedition. I quote, Mr. Speaker and gentlemen, I herewith send you an account of the number of the Negroes who were enlisted and sent on the late expedition for the relief of the colony of Georgia, several of whom have applied to me for some small reward for their purpose on that occasion. But as there was no established provision for that purpose, I could not well grant their request, and as a small allowance by way of reward for what they have done may be an encouragement on the future occasions where the Negroes may be of great service to the province. End quote. Bull listed over 73, quote, Negroes enlisted on, the board, on board the vessels fitted out by this government, unquote. It is not clear if these men were enslaved or free, but the colony's assembly didn't seem to care either way. They were still angry about the Stono Slave Rebellion. They were very much looking out for their interests as white property, property owners, and they uh, took only a couple hours to refuse the request without comment. These black sailors may not have won the day and gotten payment for their service in the South Carolina Provincial Navy. Nevertheless, their willingness to stand up to a colony that increasingly had passed restrictive laws on the enslaved and free community of color and to demand compensation for defending that very same colony demonstrates the sad double standard these men faced. They were asked to defend South Carolina, the colony that had enslaved them and treated them as second-class citizens. But on the other hand, they were never paid or recognized for it. This small case of legal resistance to the slaveocracy in colonial South Carolina has rarely ever been discussed, but it is noteworthy as an early case of black resistance to racist institutions in colonial America. It is also a noteworthy case of early black participation in an American military force. I hope that everybody enjoyed today's podcast. It's the first podcast I've done. I think in several months, 
And I certainly hope to be more regular with this podcast's outcome and to talk more about not only naval history, but other kind of undersung and underappreciated episodes from early colonial history. Now, this podcast will also focus on medical history and social history, but naval history being my focus will always be my anchor, for lack of a better pun. Please follow us on Facebook, or follow this podcast on Facebook, rather. Look up Cannon Blast History Podcast. Please share this with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues. And I just want to thank you all so much for listening. Have a great rest of your summer.